question everything. <laughs> <laughs> Find a third way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Irenacast. We are a weekly podcast dedicated to the exploration of faith and culture. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hey, I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thank you once again for joining us this week. So how is everyone? Good. I'm good. How are you guys? Doing well. Thank you. I'm doing oh. I'm doing really good because I'm drinking uh, some of the best coffee I've ever had right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> We've lost you to the dark side. Uh, or is it or is it the light roast side? I don't know. It's it's medium. Oh, yeah. of course yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. Medium roast is preferable. It is because if you go too dark, you lose caffeine, right? Yeah. Jeff? Yeah. The yeah, darker okay. the roast, the despite popular misconception, the, the darker the roast, the, the less caffeine you're getting. So the long story short is that Jeff introduced me to pour over coffee and I bought a Chemex about a month and a half ago. And I've been trying all the different roasters because I live in uh, Northern California. There's a whole bunch in the city that I live in and I've been buying a bunch of different beans. And right now um, my wife bought Rwandan beans and it is amazing. So good. You should hear. Listen. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear the quality and that sip. <laughs> seriously it's so good if if you guys have not tried pour over coffee any of our listeners you should do it it will change your life it will <laughs> welcome to the evangelism of coffee yes <laughs> what about you mona how you been doing well you guys you'll be very proud of me because i went to the dentist today <laughs> and it had been i'm 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 quite ashamed to say it had been two years since i'd gone to the congratulations thank you and um i mean the last time i neglected to go to the dentist for a while i had eight cavities and so i really should learn my lesson (laughs) but today the dentist told me he actually said quote your teeth are perfect Ooh, nice! i was very proud of that so naturally i went to the store and bought candy bars (laughs) 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 and um I don't know. So I've been I've been thinking a lot today about which candy bar is the best candy bar. I have gone through many phases in my life. I mean, there's like a payday phase, there was a butterfinger phase, there was a there was a Twix phase. And <laughs> oh. now I'm in the phase of cookies and cream by Hershey's. You guys know this? The white chocolate with the little crunchy balls in there? Yes. Yeah, I've seen that one. I've never tried it. It doesn't sound good to me. I loved it when I was a little kid. But it's been a very long time. Been a very I think my long taste buds are progressing. <laughs> if you're eating you white chocolate, then your taste buds are degressing. I'm sorry. Is that De- right? Degressing? Degressing? Regressing. It's not right. Doesn't it's that regressing. I don't know how to talk, apparently. No. I know. It doesn't sound delicious, but it's so delicious. And then I started feeling sick because <laughs> oh so God. much sugar. How many and did you I eat? Myself- <laughs> well, Enough to justify going to the dentist next time, right? I have perfect teeth, so therefore, I need them. You need to use them. (laughs) Exactly. Do you guys have favorite candy bars? Is that just me that I think too much about this, maybe? No, I think it's important to have a favorite or even write a blog about the top five favorite. (laughs) Maybe. I never eat them. I never, ever, ever buy candy bars, so I guess it's a big deal when I do it. Yeah, I haven't really had candy bars in a while, but... I like Reese's peanut butter cups. That's not a candy bar. That's not a candy bar. 
That's I true. That is, is not. That, that, that shouldn't be considered a candy bar. Okay. Uh, uh, I remember uh, Reese's made a candy bar version. It's called something like a some sort of break or some. I forgot what it's called, but there is a Check Reese's that. peanut butter candy bar. Okay, if you so. don't know what it's called, it can't be your favorite. I think it's called it's called a, like a fast break or Reese's. No, sticks. you've lost your chance. <laughs> yeah, you're you're done. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, do you have a favorite? I do. I think. Well, I'm like you. My favorites have changed over time, but I have that one that I always go back to. So I would consider that my favorite since it's my default, and it's Baby Ruth. I love it. Baby Ruth. Yeah. Wait, does that have the nougat in it or the? Yeah. the um... It's basically a chocolate covered payday. So weird. Oh, yeah. Those are not good. No, they're delicious. I like crunchy. I like crunchy toffee, like Snickers. Delicious. Oh, Heath, Heath bars. Bar. Oh my That's God. a Heath close bar. second for me. Yeah. Oh, I love those. Back to the yeah. Baby Ruth. I don't eat Baby Ruth <laughs> because all I think about is Babe Ruth when I see those. And I'm not going to eat a candy bar sand- named after like a chubby guy. I you know what I Goonies mean? Goonies every time. <laughs> I think about the oh, Sandlot. Goonies. Really? Right? Go- Sandlot. That's what Sloth what? gets chunk is a, is a Baby Ruth. No, you're absolutely right. The Sandlot, they're actually talking about the real Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, the great Bambino. He says Baby Ruthie in uh, Sandlot. I think that's what you're thinking of. (laughs) Oh, that's right. He thinks it's some girl that signed the... That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Babe Ruth. Girls in baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny that you mentioned that you went to the dentist for the first time. I think just a couple weeks. Not the first time. Well, in a couple years. (laughs) I just recently canceled a dentist appointment because I'm too busy. And quite honestly, I'm terrified of the dentist. Every time I go, I get the shakes and really, I I, I hate it so much, so much. I get in the, uh, the chair and I'm just kind of like, I don't like to talk. And then the last time I went in, the lady that was helping me was asking me all kinds of questions why she has like this, (laughs) this scraper in my mouth where she's cleaning my teeth. And I was like, how am I supposed to answer these questions? And then, you know how, like when people will give you a suggestion and you're kind of like, Oh, that's good. But then certain people have like a, a tone to their voice that makes it sound condescending. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that was this lady. The whole time I was getting my teeth clean. So I'm already terrified and now I'm annoyed. And then she started to try to like make comments. It's one thing to make comments about what you know, like, you know, you're a teeth cleaner or whatever. But it's another thing. She started talking about like, oh, you know, the 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 gray in your hair makes as well. And I'm like, listen, like, <laughs> you, you don't get to tell me like how to fix my hair and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I know it's gray and I know it's prematurely gray. So leave me alone and don't try to like, (laughs) I get annoyed easily. when. Maybe she was taught that she has to say something positive for every like negative thing she has to say. So when she's talking about yourself, she has to reach for some compliment. And that was the first thing that came to her mind. Maybe, or maybe she just wasn't taught anything on how to interact with people. Maybe not. I was tempted to like do a complaint, but that feels silly too. Mm-hmm. I had a cleaner once who was like asking me all these questions and I would try to answer and he'd be like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> See, what is that? I'm like, yeah. He'd be like, shh, stop talking. <laughs> you just asked me a question. <laughs> Yeah, see, generally when I go out into public, I don't like I don't like to talk to people that I don't know. I just want to do whatever I need to do. And then I figure oh. if I go to the dentist, at the very least, no one's going to talk to me because they know I can't respond. But no, that's you not the case. You would love the East Coast. People just <laughs> do not talk to you. You get on the public transit. And if if actually, if if someone, if you try to talk to someone, like you'll get a death glare. It's great. <laughs> really? You yeah. know, the, the family that Mona and I come from, though, is the complete opposite. Like <laughs> our family, it's all about. 
I don't know, just talking to strangers and learning totally. about their lives and their childhoods and stuff. So, yeah, that just it, doesn't work back here. It yeah. does. People are just like, why the hell are you <laughs> talking to me? <laughs> See, I think that's generally how it is where, where I live, but recently or not recently, but my, uh, my two twin daughters, you can't go out mm-hmm. without like someone saying something because they're freaking adorable and everyone in the world loves right. them. So everywhere we go, like, it's great. Like people are like, ah, oh, but we get the same questions like, Oh, a boy and a girl. No, two girls look at the clothing, you know, or just <laughs> don't are obsessed with that. Like they, they have are. to know they will not rest until they know the sex of that baby who cannot express themselves sexually. <laughs> it's like a really strange thing to me. It yeah, is. We, we actually uh, put up a poll on the blog one time because there was a baby that the parents were going to tell the world what the sex was. And oh, yeah, people got so angry. <laughs> and so we threw up a poll <laughs> that was like, hey, does this matter to you? Like, do you care? Should they I say demand it? to know not? what's under that diaper? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And it doesn't help that they're still pretty bald. Even at a year and a half, like that is true. They're really bald. They're late you know, bloomers when it comes to hair. <laughs> I get comments. I'm I'm their uncle, but I'm not blood related. And because I was bald for a little while and shaved my head, people would say, "Is everybody bald in your family?" It was I don't know. Yeah, that's what I, I get too. They're like, "Oh, they look like the daddy," and I'm like, "Oh, really?" Because they're chubby in the face <laughs> and they have bald head. Like that's very nice of you. <laughs> they kind of look like Rugrat babies, Jeff. They do. They kind of do. I mean, yeah. in, in and they a way act that like it too. They pull stuff up to the like little playpen crate, not crate. Uh, you don't put your babies in a crate <laughs> to the gate for the playpen and try to climb over. Like I've seen that firsthand. It's pretty cool. Oh yeah, they're they're pretty genius when it comes to trying to find things to climb on. All right. Well, this week we're going to do things a little differently. So instead of moving into a uh, fun little segment that we've come up with, we're actually going to get into the bulk of our conversation right off. And this week we're going to be talking about uh, something that's a little controversial, depending upon your background and framework. Uh, But we're going to talk about war and the Christian response to war and uh, probably get into a little bit on how it's connected to patriotism and all that kind of stuff. So um, join us on the other side of the music. All right. So this week we are going to talk a little bit about war. Um, depending upon your background, I know for mine at least, uh, war and the military and America were always kind of brought into one another. And never once when I was in church or anything was it ever questioned. There's always kind of this blind acceptance that if we're in a war, it's for the the greater good, you know? And um I think we, we talk a lot about that right now because there's a lot going on that I think is a reflection of that idea and how how maybe we've maneuvered through it and then what things kind of bother us as we go along with it. Yeah, for, for me personally, um, this issue, I've changed quite a bit over the years. Um, <laughs> I wrote down in my journal, I was actually uh, in high school when we went through the Iraq invasion with um, President Bush. And I remember writing down like, why are people questioning why we're going there in the first place? You know, like, why can't they just get behind the war, a war that's justifiable that we're going into? And so I I wrote that in my journal um, and then went through my educational program and ended up (laughs) writing papers and ethics classes as to how unjustified the the Iraq incursion was. Um, The idea of shock and awe and striking first before something happening. Yeah. So um, for me, I've changed quite a bit when it comes to war and have certain ideas. But I I think that my background and 
the, the friends that I have on Facebook war is kind of this, um, almost like a Christian value that we're going to protect weak people. So we need to, as Christians engage in this violence and help America set to right the evils that are in the world. That's my experience. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to piggyback off that, um, I can resonate with a lot of that, but I think early in this conversation, we need to make clear one thing Mm -hmm. that we are not (laughs) anti-troops. And that honestly, for me, whenever I get into these conversations is that the first place people go is that why don't you support the troops? They're sacrificing their lives for you. And so I want to posit that actually there is a very, um, there's a very strong case to be made that you can oppose war and still support the troops and actually maybe support the troops more by opposing senseless war. Yes. So um, if you're anyone's listening and you have military ties, either you yourself are in the service or your family or your you know, family's history, then, you know, thank you for your service. We don't want to be disrespectful to anyone, but we do want to address this very close link between Christianity and militarism mm-hmm. in the United States in the last, you know, hundred years or so. Absolutely. Particularly. Thank you. I, that's, I think that's an important distinction because I think in this conversation, you're right. I, and I've seen so many other people that default is, oh, well, you're against the troops. You're doing this, you're doing that. And to me, it's, it's ridiculous. Like just the, the, the proportion of money, like all the money that we're putting into placing these soldiers into positions to kill. And then all the funding that we're cutting to help them deal with life after they've been exposed to all of this stuff is right ridiculous and i think that right yeah yeah i agree like how, what better protection is there for that soldier than to give them less opportunities where they have to kill and can figure out more opportunities where they're actually like making a real difference in different communities because I've, I've talked to some people who've been in the military and they they do do in certain areas like a lot of um work like bringing water in and, and doing stuff that's mm-hmm. um it's more humanitarian based and i think that that, that, that i think that's a great way to start the the conversation is to make that distinction in the beginning. So thank you, Mona, for mentioning that because I, I I would it would have been awful if we would have skipped that point. Yeah, no problem. Well, and actually, and some of my strong feelings about this issue started really crystallizing when I read a study about maybe five years ago um, when we were still in Afghanistan, in, in official terms, at least, um, that the majority of soldiers, including those on the ground, opposed the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, And that was like mind-blowing to me that actually soldiers who were being sent over did not believe it was just. And like, what did that mean? So, And I, I had friends that went straight from high school into the military and um, ended up going over there and they told me their stories and the things that they were asked to do to them that they didn't believe were ethical. And so I think supporting them and supporting my own friends looked like questioning what exactly was happening. So just like you said, that survey, like I've seen that firsthand with people that I love and care about. And the ridiculous difference in those that have actually died in combat in comparison died in combat in comparison to those that have died from suicide after being back from combat is Mm. awful. Um, So I think that says something about the situation and I think it doesn't help that a a large segment of Christianity in America really glorifies it and celebrates the violent aspects of it as opposed to the soldier themselves. Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but um, just the, the general glorification of war and combat and how it, it, like, like Alan said in the beginning, it's a value for some people. And I just, that's what bothers me the most. Yeah. and, And that's the problem. The, the problem for me and for us is that the idea of war is, this thing that's held by a lot of Christians to be an unquestioned good. 
when yeah. when America goes to do things in other countries and goes to war, we see that as or at least some Christians see that as a liberation, um, you know, f- freeing bringing freedom and freedom. yeah, yeah, bringing democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. so uh, the problem isn't whether you're a Christian and you're going to sign up for something or, you know, you're a soldier or whatever. The problem is, how do we talk and feel about war in the church? And like Jeff said earlier, my church background never had any questioning of war whatsoever. And I don't see it very often uh, with a big majority of people that I'm friends with who are in church and are Christians actually see the opposite. I I see a lot of people glorifying. But I I think uh, I think the distinction needs to be made, though, that like there's there's a level of talking on an individual level, like what people's individual experiences are and giving credit to those who really do have good intentions. But then there's a much bigger systematic level or systemic where, where you really get an institution of like our entire economy being wrapped around a machine of war that cannot that's too big to fail and mm-hmm. that's protected and funded by our tax dollars. And that is so implicit in the way that we run our country that we can't see outside of it. Like that to me is the bigger issue. And that that's something that Christians need to be talking about and do talk about in large circles, but not in some. Um, and you know, in the, in the church, Jeff and I were raised in like, um, the, the pastor is a vet, which, you know, great, you know, thank you for your service again. However, uh, and we're by a military base. Um, so, but there was, a, there was a lot of, you know, support for vets and for the military. And that's all great. Like, I understand those families need a lot of support, but like during sermons and a lot of times it would be like, you know, let's, let's pray for God's will in the world. And there's a sense that like we are enacting justice in the world and that this is God's will. And that it is, there's a level of unquestionability about it, which always made me a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. And not only that, but then incorporating all that rhetoric into evangelism turning people into the enemy and just that whole mentality of we're right. And if you question that, then you're, you're slipping into the enemy side and it, it creates that divide. It creates that, um, that black and white, that us versus them mentality and, and kind of everything. And it, it's, it's so restrictive and it feels so gross, you know? Yeah. I, I think that that touches upon the one thing that I would want to say about the conversation with between Christianity and war is it, how do we look at other people, whether they're terrorists or um, people that are evil? I think there's a lot of demonization that goes on with Christians. Uh, we look at people and classify them as evil or not. But I think that most Christians believe that all people in some sense have strayed from <laughs> perfection, however that looks, whether it's like a fall originally or they choose to sin. But we all have the this ability to to do evil or to do sin or whatever you want to call it. And I think that looking at other people and saying, you know, these people are bad. They need to be wiped off the earth or they need to be killed. Making that decision without really looking inward kind of goes against the basic thing that Jesus taught. Is it like, you know, before you go confront someone else, you deal with the the things that you have going on inside of you or you deal with your own sin. And I think that um, when we don't question our own motives when we don't question the system that Mona was just talking about, we assume we're good and we characterize the other as bad. That starts even when we're little kids, right? We're like, did you see G.I. Joe growing up? Either of you? Of course. The the no. cartoon? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the, the, the cartoon is these uh, G.I. Joe action figures, or, you know, they come to life or whatever. They're, they're these real people, and they're fighting this evil um, empire kind of thing of 
men in masks, right? And they look totally different and their 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 faces are hidden and they're they're in these horrible evil snake helicopters. I forgot what it's called, Cobra or you whatever. Mean, you mean awesome snake helicopters? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the the enemy is Cobra and they literally have they look totally differently and they are unquestionably the enemy. And I think for a lot of Christian that's Christians that's how they look at they, they look at uh terrorists or you know extremists they say this is undeniably unquestionably the enemy and when we engage them we are unquestionably good and i think that christianity itself breaks down that dichotomy whenever we choose to do something we are bringing not just our good but all the baggage along with us yeah yeah (laughs) well i was gonna say too and if we're not looking at our own complicity and looking back far enough in history to see our own complicity, that's another aspect of that same problem. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, um, you know, Osama bin Laden was trained by the United States CIA. I, it's like unbelievable. This is like sounds like something someone made up. But in 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 the U.S. actually funded Al Qaeda to try to get Soviet forces out of Afghanistan in like the 80s. So we mm-hmm. created a lot of the fundamentalism and encourage, stoke the flames of the fundamentalism that would later come back to bite us. And then we just get mad when, you know, our chickens come home to roost, as um, people have said. I think that's a Jeremiah Wright quote, which is interesting. Um, do you guys remember him? He was um, the pastor that Obama sat under for many years yeah. in Chicago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was actually a, I think he was a Marine. He was a former Marine and he used that same language from the pulpit. And there was just this huge controversy because they, you know, people thought you can't say those political things that are inflammatory, that are anti-American from the pulpit. Even though we see like, to me, I'd see 10 years later, he was, I, I think that's like a prophetic voice to call people out, to call the U.S. out on its empire building and to call the U.S. out on its crap, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and th- there is a difference between being a prophetic voice and being like an echo chamber for whatever you're hearing. I think mm-hmm. Christians have lost, the Christian church largely has lost the ability to be like a check and balance, to be a prophetic voice that questions power and questions um, the state. Instead, we're this echo chamber where you hear it on in the, on the news, you see it on here, and then you go to church and people are praying to bless all of the people who are going into service. And then there's never this critiquing of the way things are. Um, you lose that prophetic connection. And that's, yeah. that's something that we had way back when, right? I mean, it was did Justin, we? <laughs> we, we, we did. I'm thinking, yeah. of like, I'm thinking of people like Justin Martyr, 100 AD, right? 100, uh, like 160 AD. He would speak to the emperor and would, would question the things that were going on. Um, one of my favorite quotes of his is that he said, we Christians refrain from making war on our enemies and cannot bear to see a man killed, even if justly. And so there was this real sense in the Christian community, at least really early on, that Probably because Christians were persecuted, but the 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 sense that you don't just look at people as enemies and resort to violence, and there was this real critique of power. Uh, of course, we lost that pretty early. I think um, very, early. <laughs> very early. It seems to be well, isolated voices. Constantine, yeah, like the middle of the fourth century when Christianity became one with power, it got very difficult to be a prophetic voice because we're a part of the system. So if you don't know the story of Constantine, that's a pretty interesting story, right? Do you remember, Alan? Yes. You want to tell it? 
Go for so, it. So, yeah, from what I know, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire, and they were persecuted by emperor after emperor. And Constantine was waging a war to take over um, to take over Rome. And the story goes he had a dream the night before a battle in his dream. He saw a cross in the in the clouds and a voice told him to fight under wage war under the sign of this cross. So he had soldiers paint the cross on their shields and then fought you know, under the name of Jesus. And he won this battle, eventually became emperor and took over the, the Roman Empire. And he made Christianity legalized for the first time. So he called the leaders of the Christian church to get together, define orthodoxy, even, you know, eventually define a canon. And that that's the books of the Bible. And really, he was instrumental in creating the church as we know it. And I think it, it wasn't necessarily the religion of the Roman Empire. It wasn't the official religion until officially the next emperor. But at least Constantine, through his warring under Jesus, established the Christian church as we know it. And so ever since then, the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. And we've kind of, and they called it Christendom. And that's something that we've extended even in the United States, right? I mean, the, the, the early United States, people wrote about the promised land, used very religious language when they founded, you know, the, the documents of, of America. And so Christianity has had its it has been holding the hand of government governments and, and power for centuries. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of this famous painting about manifest destiny. I think it's called American progress by Gast is the artist. Have you seen this? It's like um, people traveling West, like Oregon trail style. And there's this like giant white blonde woman, like with floating Grecian robes, like carrying a Bible and like traveling West with these, with these people. Have you seen this? I've heard of that, but I'm, I can't picture it in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So look up American progress by John Gast and you'll see this, but if you look at it closely, you can actually see the white settlers are like driving the darkness and the dark people more westward, including like all the Native Americans. But it's really amazing this idea that like it's okay to enact violence because the will of God is behind us. Mm -hmm. Like we are really God's justice and God's prosperity in the world. And like, that's what we stand for. And therefore when we act in the world, we are acting like on God's behalf in a lot of ways. So manifest destiny, I agree with you, Alan, is completely tied to Constantine mm -hmm. and this idea that, that when we enter a space, we are bringing Christendom in there. And it doesn't matter what we do. Our actions can be justified because we are ultimately bringing, like we're paving a way for the gospel to go forward, you know? So a lot of atrocities have been done in the name of that. Yeah. I think the problem is, is that, you know, we're talking about history and there's this greater context to Christianity and, and violence and nations and all of that. But we live in a context that goes from four years to four years to four years. So everything has to be this instant reaction. So 9-11, we get attacked. Well, we have to attack right away. More so, so that the president can be reelected or their polls don't mm. go up or down or anything like that. So I believe that the long-term solution is the, the long-term solution is, is changing the narrative, changing the rhetoric as far as who America is and how they relate to the Middle East. But that's going to take decades of consistent humanitarian effort of doing this, but that's just not going to happen the way that our structure is because we're not concerned with context. Mm -mm. 
Well, yeah. And I was thinking we're, we're, earlier, we we're talking about what we we're talking about, like things that the soldiers had to do that weren't ethical and, you know, people that have died coming back, like as a result of PTSD. What we didn't mention is the civilian casualties on the other side where we yeah. have like, you know, it's like a one to 1000 ratio of like our soldiers to civilians in the Middle East in these wars that we've been raging. Um, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people that is like, it is arguably genocide. And and this is just not, these numbers are just not talked about in popular media, in, yeah. in news media. They're just not, they're not talked about. And it's like, if you tried it, I've tried on many occasions to talk to people about this and people treat me like a conspiracy theorist, even though this is incredibly well-documented. Yeah. Um, that's really frustrating. It's really yeah. frustrating. And whether we say it or not, like you said, the numbers and the way that we talk about it, we place value, more value on certain lives than other lives. And, you know, Absolutely. one soldier dies, we have this huge, as well we should, this saying that this person died and we make a big deal out of it, but we should make an equal big deal for every child or woman or person that dies on the other side who had no reason to be killed for whatever conflict was going on. And that's yeah. and that returns us back to to what we were saying earlier. It is patently Christian to look at enemies and humanize them to to, of, of course, engage in, in the dialogue and the, the to name evil and do that kind of thing. But at the same time, to remember that all people belong to God. Right. That, that that's mm-hmm. that's what Christianity is. God's own self. Well, you know, G- it depends Jesus. on who you talk to. I agree with you. But mm-hmm. I, mean, I was raised with the idea that like not everyone is a child of God. Yeah. Only really? Christians are children of God. Yeah. yeah. I was taught that very strongly. I, I, I'm just thinking about the centrality of like Jesus. Right. God looks at quote unquote enemies and says, you know, people who oppose the will of God and says, I am going to make a sacrifice, be the first person to not, you know, react violently and win over enemies through this like self-sacrificing love. And that's the heart of what Christianity is, is loving these people who are disconnected from you. And, yeah. and you know, like that's what the New Testament's all about. Jesus talked about loving enemies all the time. And so even if these yeah. people are, you know, you don't have a whole lot in common with them. Let's just say you're going to demonize them and call them an enemy or even recognize, you know, that they're a terrorist and they're doing horrible things and they need to be stopped. At the very same time, to be a Christian is to recognize that you owe them love because God has loved you. That that argument, you know, that God loves you, even though you might not be worthy of it all the time, like is used over and over in the New Testament to say even by Jesus to say that, look, even God loves ungodly people, even God loves, you know, horrible people. Why aren't you loving them as well? So for me, the question always comes back to as a Christian, what does love look like when it comes to enemies? Well, I think that 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 is misconstrued a lot of times by the way that people talk, because there's this sense from a certain segment that it's passive. You know what I mean? And I I would say, depending upon your interpretation of things like Matthew five, when Jesus says, um, you know, turn the other cheek. Uh, if someone asks you to walk a mile, walk two. And that that whole idea when we're so disconnected from the context of those words, that there's a um, there's a very like strong sense of aggressive peacemaking is that you you can make a difference and you can confront the realities that are around you without having to resort to that violence, but to do something different. Like, you know, we come up with uh, military strategy and all that kind of stuff, but you have people in Martin Luther King's camp and and Gandhi who they had strategists on how to confront and almost be victims of violence to show 
people the devastation of it. You know, I mean, it's essentially the cross. We talk a lot about the cross and how, you know, he died for our sins. But I think more than anything, the cross is that visual representation of what a life of war and sin or whatever, you know, whatever word we use, but the cross is that like culmination of it's the, if this is the life that we live, or this is the society that we create on violence, on personal interests, then the result is ugly. It's, it's not good. I agree with you, Jeff. And I, I tend to not find a lot of life in um, this idea that God turns, that God suffers so that no one has to suffer anymore, you know, through sending Jesus to die or this idea that God turns suffering into goodness. Like I, I really do think that that's like created this psychology where yeah. in a lot of ways, death is life and to embrace death means to find the will of God in some way. And I think that is so harmful to think that way. And I, I, and I know a lot of theologians like today are really starting to resist this idea, even, okay, and this is where it gets really controversial. And and if you guys disagree, that's fine. But even that any concept of atonement that God wanted Jesus to die on any plane or in any capacity is inherently death embracing. And it's like, what does it look like for us to re-examine even the way we read the Bible? So this is one option among others for how to like deal with violence, but in a way that does not embrace any form of violence, even violence that's meant to be redemptive. Like what, what might that look like? Some people ask. So I, I understand what you're saying. And I think that that's a huge conversation that we should have (laughs) for another podcast episode. We should talk about the atonement or why did Jesus need to die and how to look at that. But I think like if, if I want to answer in accordance with the earliest of Christians, it's the idea that God, that Jesus overcame violence. However that looks, however we're going to go about it is that like the cross is God overcoming the powers of violence. That's what the resurrection is. That's what like, that's what Christianity, you know, is about early Christianity. And so how do we talk about violence now? Like that's, that's a question we can all answer like right now because there are people who are posting on Facebook or (laughs) like saying, go watch this movie. Uh, We were talking about that earlier, right, Jeff, that there are movies that have come out recently that Christians are getting behind that. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. Which ones were they? Particularly like startling for me is that a large segment of, of Christianity has supported that movie, American Sniper about, Someone uh, about a guy named Chris Kyle who, you know, was a sniper. And this is a quote from this guy. This kind of gives the, you know, we all know quotes from Martin Luther King because the the contrast is American Sniper, this biopic about this sniper named uh, Chris Kyle. And then Selma, this instance in Selma with Martin Luther King and the violence that came as a result of their peaceful sit-in. So, you know, we know Martin Luther King, I have a dream, or hopefully we do, if not. Listeners, go read everything that he's ever done. Um, <laughs> but here's 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 a quote from the sniper. It says, I only wish I had killed more. I loved what I did. I still do. If circumstances were different, if my family didn't need me, I'd be back in a heartbeat. I'm not lying or exaggerating to say it was fun. That's Good gross. God. That's that should be unsettling for-, for those of us that that claim to worship the God of the universe and and followers of Jesus Christ. Like, well, I mean, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I want to wonder more about what the context is. I haven't seen the film, but it's, mm-hmm. I wonder why Christian. Okay. So why do Christians tell each other to go see this movie? What's the, what it, is this guy a Christian in the movie? What is it? At least what I've seen on Facebook, um, Jeff, you could probably answer this better, but just for my part, I've seen people, Christians posting constantly about how 
we need to remember this hero because he was tragically murdered, right? He, he was, was murdered. He was murdered on, by on a an, shooting range. Another veteran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By he, another veteran. Whom he was trying to help because he knew suffering from PTSD. Like, like I'm not. And I think that in connection to that, like he was trying to help someone. And I think that says more about just the culture of violence that war creates is that here's this one yeah. guy who was a sniper trying to help someone else who was suffering from very traumatic symptoms of post-traumatic stress syndrome. And he ends up killing him. Like there's, it's this, this cycle. And, um, I think that the appeal for a lot of Christians is that like what Alan was saying, it was that, that patriotic, like he was a hero. He needs to be remembered. He needs to be memorialized because I've seen a lot of memes and and things like that. And, and you know what? I feel very strongly when any human being is killed, uh, this guy included, uh, Chris. And I think that Christians try to memorialize him because his killing of what was 160 confirmed kills or something like that was good. The thing that he did protected people, liberated people from evil. So he needs to be memorialized as a hero. For me, my question comes up, like, what kind of heroes do we want? If uh, you learned about Christians in, you know, a, a, a prior period of history, memorializing and making a hero out of someone who, you know, chopped people's heads off in the French Revolution or, or someone who was a um, what do you call those guys? The guys that wear the hoods and pull the um, <laughs> the, the strike. I can't even remember, but like the executioner executioner. Yeah. OK. Uh, so basically what this guy was, was an executioner. And and uh, is that something that you want to memorialize and say, this is so good. This is something that needs to be modeled. You know what? That's actually a good conversation to have. There are Christians going over to other parts of the world right now as contracted killers. Do you guys know that? That there are people who feel that they are called by God to go protect innocents. So they are contracting as Christian killers to go to places that need it and and kill people in defense or whatever. And they're doing this because oh, they, like anti-ISIS, like people trying to. Yes. 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 That's really fascinating. Yeah. And, and I don't know what to is, make of it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, every I saw so I'm a pacifist. I guess I'd say it right now. Right. I'm a pacifist. And it is something that I struggle with every single day because I read the New Testament, because I, you know, Jesus is my role model. That is how I've chosen to relate to the world. But there are some things that make me question that all the time. And, and, and the ISIS situation is one like I have a really hard time justifying my pacifism in the face of things like that. But on a larger scale. Yeah, but at, at, on I the asked, same note with that, I'm sorry uh, to interrupt, Alan, but on the same okay. note with that, like if if we were consistent with our pacifism, then the situation with ISIS wouldn't have been created. So by not being by by resorting to mm. war earlier on, we created this ISIS situation. And then we feel like we're in a situation where the only way we can deal with that is to create yeah. more violence on top of it. And then all we're doing right. is creating another thing down the like there's got to be a place where we stop and we're like, look, we are the victims of this. This happened. But to we us. are also incredibly com- complicit. Exactly. And we need yeah. to come up with another strategy because the last time we tried to attack this way brought us to this situation. And I think that I don't know if we have the capability in the way that I think we do as people, but I don't know if our system has the capability to be able to stop and go, all right, enough is enough. We don't want to deal with this again. It feels like we're letting it go, but we're not because we're creating a better future because we talk about all the time, creating a better future for our kids and our grandkids. And I think we need to apply that, that principle to the wars we choose to participate in. And and we can, we, we can vote, right? We can get politically active. We can do things to oppose certain things. We can do that, but also we can control, and and this is my passion, we can control the way we talk and the people that we memorialize. We can do that like right now in our churches, in on Facebook, like whatever. And my question is, we really need to ask ourselves as Christians, 
what do we want to make into a hero? You, you were saying, you know, American Sniper outsold Selma, and I've seen way more Christians supporting one than the other. And the question is, like, what what impulse do we have to look at the good in the world and then make that our aspiration instead of aspiring to be a sniper that kills 160 people? Like, is that something Christians should aspire to or at least like not celebrate and then, I don't know. Do you guys get what I'm saying? Christians should well, aspire to having a world to where there's no need for a sniper. You know what yeah, I mean? For sure. Yeah. And this is our failure to look at bigger systems. And I think it's also really important to note that this is a failure of biblical interpretation. Alan, you'll like my point here, I think. Um, so I'm remembering reading back to Martin Luther's commentary on Matthew. And I believe this is the passage where he talks about, you know, he's talking about blessed are the peacekeeper, peacekeepers, um, the peacemakers, excuse me, in the mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mount, right? So we all blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the peacekeepers, right? And so Martin Luther gets to this point, And I think I'm remembering correctly. I can go back and check this, but where he says, he's talking specifically about your question, Alan, about executioners. Is it right and just for a Christian to be an executioner? And you know, Martin Luther, he says, well, see this, the Sermon on the Mount, really, Jesus is saying, as long as your spirit and your heart are in the right place, it doesn't matter what your outward office is. It doesn't matter if you're an executioner because somebody's got to do the dirty jobs in the world, you know, and maybe that executioner is just because they're carrying out the justice system. What really matters is his own heart before God. And therefore we need to interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a purely, almost purely spiritual way. Mm-hmm. Like th- this is talking about peacemaking in your heart and in your spirit. And so this is like, when we're hearing these things from today's Christian, right? We're really hearing Martin Luther talking to us from 500 years ago and and the way this one guy has impacted all of Christian thinking and the way that we look at these verses, we do not take it seriously culturally for the most part to like turn the other cheek. That doesn't, that verse just doesn't even like register in the American mind. We're, we're just, we're about preemptive violence. Like, so I think what you're saying really needs to be like focused on you're talking about the Sermon on the Mount and that is the largest contiguous body of Jesus's teaching. People have always interpreted that as a set of antitheses. You know, don't do this, do that. And people looked at the stuff Jesus was saying as this unattainable ideal. Right. Like um, you're saying, uh, man, it, it, I, I, no, I think what, what you're trying to say is that, well, and, and jump in if you kind of get your thought again. But what I'm uh-huh. saying, sure. I think that there's this idea of it's this inconsistent morality in the sense that a a certain Christian evangelical or a lot of them, not all of them, they would say, uh, well, we live the reality of the world we live in is that, that, you know, gets back to the whole Hitler thing is that there's Hitlers and we can't just stand by and let someone do that. Da, 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 da. So they apply this exception to the idea of love your enemies unless the enemy does this, this, this or whatever. But they would never apply that to well, we live in a world that's hypersexualized. So it's unrealistic for someone to not wait for to have sex before they get married. You know what I mean? Like there's this inconsistency mm-hmm. in the way that they do their logic to where on one hand you want to be aware of the reality of the world and the world we live in that there's just evil and we need to do something about it and you know we don't want to but we have to but we would never right say to, that about other right things. to light debates it reminds me of what you're saying right to light debates of people say like even in cases of rape abortion should not be accessible to women like there is no exception there is no understanding that the world is a real place and people are real people <laughs> yeah or so, it's so like, that's selective how, so, on when they want to apply that and that's the problem is yeah, that there's no consistency yeah. through it part of that comes back to and, and 
And so I've, I've got my train of thought again. The way we interpret the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just the Beatitudes. It's also Jesus said things like, you've heard it said, you know, you shall not murder. But I say, don't even be angry with your brother or sister. You've heard it said, you shall not commit mm. adultery. But I say, don't even look at a woman lustfully. People have yeah. read that, especially in German theological circles, you know, early on and, and even up till today. People have read that as a set of antitheses. You've heard it said this. I say, you know, do this. And they think that Jesus is giving us an unattainable ideal. Don't look at a woman lustfully. Well, it's impossible for people to do that, but it's something we should kind of aspire to, although we make these, you know, compromises or whatever. Don't be angry with your brother or sister. That's not, that's an impossible ideal. It's not something we actually realize in the real world, but it's something we kind of, it's a spectrum we move toward. Uh, My ethics professor at Fuller, Glenn Stassen, who recently passed away, wrote something called Kingdom Ethics. And I think Jeff might've read this. Um, Yeah, it was good. Kingdom Ethics is this idea that this is not a set of antitheses. Jesus doesn't say, hey, this is what you know. This is what I want you to do. And it's like this impossible ideal. It's actually a set of three things you have. You have heard it said this. I say this to you, and this is how I would apply it. So Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I say, you should not be angry with your brother or sister. And then goes on to say, hey, if you're going to give an offering, leave it there and go uh, be reconciled to your brother or sister. He gives these really practical ways to do a third thing. So it's not just um, hmm. it's not just these antitheses that are set up against each other. Jesus is honestly offering new ways of of engaging the world. And if you look at Mm. the Sermon on the Mount that way, it completely opens up this this idea that Christian ethics is not about these ideals that nobody can aspire to. It's not about these black and white things. It's about getting into the mix and living a third way, doing something different that addresses the issue. And that's what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look at it that way, like it it really bolsters what you are talking about is that it's not necessarily about war or not war. It's about getting involved and resolving things in a third way. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, totally yeah. agree with that. I think it's, it's, that makes the, a lot of sense. It's about having the creativity to introduce a new way as a Christian community, as opposed to outside a cycle of violence. Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. and I mean, really we're striving for the ideal. And just because we think it may be impossible to reach the hundred percent fulfillment of that doesn't mean we don't strive for it or at least a semblance of it in certain ways, because otherwise what, what's the point? So I, I have this really weird thought that I always talk about with people. <laughs> you said creativity is is one of the issues at hand, and I completely agree. Sometimes I think war and killing are a failure of creativity. Yes. Pers- mm. Personally. And I mm. think that if we spent half of the amount of money and, and effort and energy that we do on weapons that kill people. Did, did you guys hear that we just replaced our jets with something better in America and it cost something to the tune of like someone will have to look this up, but like $40 billion or I don't even know how much. Yeah, which was. could actually buy every person without a home in the U.S. a home. Like yeah, at, so four, at 400 grand. It's such an insane amount of money. That is, I always that think is about the economic aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that is just to update from one version of a, of an of a jet to another just to have the, the latest and greatest jet. That's what we spent our money on. If we take half of the money that we spend on creating really good weapons that kill people, what if we invested some of that in less than lethal options? Like, I know there are some out there, but what if we spent all of the time and effort and energy and honestly glorifying in our media weapons like the um, news and video games and all those kinds of things glorify weapons? I know junior hires in my youth group that knew 
40 different kinds of weapons and what caliber of bullets they have, but they couldn't tell you one thing about <laughs> history or anything else like that. But they're, they're ingrained with this sense of worshiping weapons. What if we spent all of that time and worship and effort into less than lethal weaponry? What could be out there? And instead of resulting to that creativity, we're going with what we have and just making it better. I have this um, I have this very vivid memory. I remember watching Bush's first speech introducing the idea of the war on terror after 9-11. And I asked my mom, why don't instead of going to war, we just like develop things that don't make us reliant on oil? <laughs> so think about all the millions and billions of dollars that we give to warlords in the Middle East for oil rights. Right. And a lot of that money is weaponized and turned back and used in really non-humane ways. So what if we had spent the last decade getting off our oil reliance and stopping empowering people who have mal malicious global intent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it. you also have to follow the money line and who is being empowered by how resources shift. And so I think that is part of the creativity too. So not just like a third way once the, the reality has been created, but yeah. actually looking for ways to completely completely subvert the entire situation as it stands. Right. And I think that's Absolutely. what both of us are, both all of us are getting at is that Jesus was saying, like, look at this thing that you're dealing with in a completely different light, in a completely different light. And peacemaking is something that is often, um, it's not seen. It's not a seen thing. And often it is like yep. a preemptive in a way that is, um, very creative, like you're saying, Alan. And and isn't so. that the point? Like, isn't the whole center of of the teaching of Christianity and Jesus is this this central thing of hope, and to provide creativity enough to change a situation that feels so big and so unchangeable? Yeah. With creativity, there's hope in that. There's oh, we can do this. We wouldn't, you know, those those people wouldn't have sat down in Selma if there wasn't hope that they were making a difference in this bigger picture that at the moment felt so impossible to change. And they did, yeah. right? Exactly. They did. They, did. Mm -hmm. they made a huge difference. I mean, we still have a long way to go and that's an, another podcast, but. Well, and, and I think it's really, it's important to note here. And, and this is where my discomfort with this, the movie comparison is kind of coming up because I, I agree with you. It's really weird to me that American Sniper outsold, um, Selma because Christians mostly because of the Christian like uh, support base. Um, but I think it's interesting to note that like racism is a completely different issue and has a lot to do with this, that there aren't a lot of, I mean, I, I know a lot of African-Americans and African-American churches that are trying to get people to go to see Selma yep. because they don't support militarism like white uh, evangelicals do. So that's really important to know that this is not, this militarism is not indicative of all evangelicals. Yeah. You know, it, it's mostly white people who have not confronted their privilege in a lot of ways or looked at other ways to look at it. Um, Absolutely. And okay. So I want to talk about something else really quick. I, I think it's really interesting that you brought up Hitler, right? Cause Hitler is like, that's the go-to example, right? <laughs> it is the go-to thing. Okay. But this is really interesting to me. So um, one of the greatest Christian ethicists, at least that a lot of um, evangelical reads, uh, evangelicals read is who, Alan, do you remember? Mm -hmm. Quiz. Bonhoeffer, 
right? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Von Hoeffer is like, he's, his work on ethics is like some of the most astounding in the, in the 20th century. Okay. So he, this guy, if you remember the story of Von Hoeffer, it's really fascinating. So most of the German church went along with the Nazis, like said things like, mm-hmm. we're not called now to be Christians, but to be Germans. And like this insane nationalism took over the German church, the, the official German church. But Von Hoeffer and a lot of these other guys were kind of like, they, they formed the resistance against the Hitler regime, right? And so they they actually attempted to kill Hitler on more than one occasion. But Bonhoeffer, as like a very peaceful person, as a pastor and a theologian, he just, he agonized over whether this was moral or not, even though Hitler was doing terrible things and he knew it. He, he a lot of his ethics work comes out of that agony of mm-hmm. like, good God, how can I take another human life? And he ended up in a tr- concentration camp and, and died in a concentration camp. It's a really sad story. But what a lot of people focus on is, is Bonhoeffer's heroism in taking down Hitler, but they miss the part of the story where the church goes along so much with the state interests that it becomes completely corrupt. Yeah. So, Do you know what I mean? And not yeah, only so, that, but then our decisions, like the, highlighting that agony part, is that there doesn't even seem to be a struggle with people when they say, well, we should kill him. We should go to war. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, sure. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, actually about um, Bonhoeffer, there is a book that just came out this last year that questions whether he, so he got put in prison or the concentration camp because he actually tried to kill Hitler because he put a, put a bomb in Hitler's office or whatever. Yeah. That uh, um, wasn't that, that uh, the Tom the, Cruise movie Valkyrie attempt. or whatever, that was kind of about that attempt. Uh, I think. So there's a book that just came out that actually questions whether Bonhoeffer was a part of that or not, because there's a lot of, a lot of countless huh. retellings of his life, but there's some, some new work coming out. And, and in, in any case, whether well, I think he it was his brother-in-law, like, but his mm-hmm. circle was definitely involved yes. in it. Maybe he wasn't directly involved, but his circle of and friends his struggle, and people were. His struggle is well-documented. That, yeah. and, and that's the issue. And you know, what's really cool is if, if someone's listening to this and is interested in that history, you should look up something called the Barnum declaration. It's these people you're talking about, these pastors who resisted the German nationalistic Isn't um, it Balfour? Christianity. It is. No, Balfour that's Declar- Balfour is that declaration else? is what uh, <laughs> created Israel, England. Um, oh, after yeah. Give that Getting my history confused. The Barnum declaration is what um, these, I think that's what it's called. These pastors came together and made a statement that were in the minority of Christian pastors who opposed the Nazi regime or whatever. But yeah, that struggle is largely absent. And not just that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like sometimes having that struggle is seen as threatening to a lot of Christianity. When when a Christian- Barman declaration. Barman, I got it backwards. B-A-R-M-N-E-N. Okay. Okay. Well, this is interesting because so the U.S. It was seen in the time of World War II to be conducting a just war, right? We can kind of agree on that. Like horrible things were happening. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to get involved. We chose to get involved. And like I've met people in Europe who thanked me for for America's action during and after World War II because we really are like still considered as like the savior of in a lot of ways, yeah. but we have this narrative. Okay. But we have this narrative in our heads that we are still the savior and nothing yeah. we can do now is wrong because all of our wars are just right. Like that narrative still exists in our cultural tellings Absolutely. of our own selves. Well, and then we're back to the whole context thing. Why was Hitler able to even rise to power? Well, because Germany was so devastated in World War One. So it was this cycle of violence that created mm-hmm. this new cycle of violence. Yeah. So I think it's, it's just well, power vacuums so as endless. well. Yeah. Power vacuums are really, really dangerous. And we've not learned our lesson in that way either, because no. this is exactly the same exact story with Middle Eastern wars. It's Absolutely. the same story. We help create power vacuums 
And then we get mad when someone rises to power that we don't like, you know? Well, I think we should just stay the heck out of it. Don't you guys think? I mean, we have, <laughs> we have 200 military bases around the world, over 200, 200. And like, when I try to tell people, I talk about the American empire, they look at me like I'm a nutbag. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but like, if that's not empire building, I don't know what is, you know, like, I mean, yeah, we, not we all those, we're not connecting 200 wards, but we yeah. undeniably have the largest military presence. We spend the most out of you know, all the, you, you can look at the, the statistics of how much we spend on military versus everyone else. And we're basically, if you look at it from a purely economical standpoint, and I'm not even talking Christian or whatever, we're footing the bill for security in the world. Right. We're, we're the ones that are taking it upon ourselves to be the world security because of all those bases and everything like that. And there yeah, comes but why do we with do that? that, but there comes with that a feeling of paternalism, right? Of us oh, being yeah. like the, the person that's patting the world on the head or we we're are the, the ones great that, benefactors. Mm-hmm. We and, are and, spreading and freedom. That's, that's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is this Christian, some Christians look at that as self-sacrifice as we are sacrificing for the greater good of everyone else. Oh, yeah. no, we are the and, proverbial dad that works too much and ignores <laughs> the kids at home. You know I mean? We're providing this for you, but right? not really giving you what you really need. Well, I think and that this, will receive it. I think that this conversation has so many layers to it. And I think we've, we've definitely only scratched the surface, but um, we don't have enough uh, bandwidth or <laughs> memory to fit the entire conversation of what that is. But we do want to hear from everyone who's listening whether you agree or disagree with us. Um, so, you know, always email the show and we're going to kind of we'll wrap it up with that. Are there any last thoughts before we move on to our segment? Question everything. <laughs> <laughs> Find a third way. <laughs> Find a third way. I like it. Yes. Be creative. Be creative. Yeah, yeah definitely. Creative. I like it a lot. That's a good takeaway. All right. Well, then let's uh, let's move on and lighten it up a little bit with uh, a new segment for the show. All right, we are back and we are going to finish up today with a uh, segment we like to call Famous Christians for 100. And basically the object of this, similar to our Jesus or Jay-Z game, but we have all found quotes within the last month, either from social media or news stories from several uh, prominent Christians. And uh, as we kind of get this game going, we'll we'll learn the personalities of different people and... um, so we've all come with a quote from a, a, a Christian, and we are going to try to guess who that quote comes from. Uh, so this is kind of the first time we've done this, and we're figuring out how it's going to work. So I uh, hope you enjoy it, because it's going to be a surprise to us as well. All right. So, <laughs> so uh, Mona, why don't you go ahead and start with the first quote? Yeah. Okay. I'm taking a risk with this one, because you might have actually seen this pop up in your like Facebook or whatever. But, um, so who's, who this... Uh, last couple of weeks was talking about yoga and um, said the following, you don't know what the Hindu says, but it's actually a prayer to a Hindu deity. And it, so it sounds like gibberish. So you're saying Kali, 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 but you're praying actually to a Hindu deity. Hmm. That sounds Pentecostal to me. That sounds like Pat Robertson. <laughs> Bingo. Oh, Are you serious? Guess. Oh, I got yeah. it. I got it. Yeah. Nice. He told people to stay away from yoga because they will speak in Hindu. But that's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to give in articles in my day about how dangerous yoga is um, (laughs) by people in churches. Oh, man, that was a good one. I was going to I wasn't sure who I was going to guess yet, but (laughs) yeah, that was good. Because Alan has one. 
uh, I will do the next quote. How about that? All right. Go the ahead. next quotation. Here Sounds we go. Good. 50 shades of nay. Those who choose to see less today will see more forever. <laughs> That's Regardless brilliant. of who that is, it's pretty, pretty smart. That's right? amazing. <laughs> that is fantastic. Um, oh, man. That's a very... I'm going to go with just kind of the stock answer for something like that. And I'm going to say John Piper. You got it. <laughs> really? Man, it's, this Piper? game is too easy. What's going oh, on? Like, no, it's not. I wasn't going to get it. All, but all I could think about was a, a YouTube video. It's called 50 of Shades Steve of Gandalf the Grey. Oh, Okay. No, if no you're easily offended, good. don't watch this. But there's no way really that's funny. as good as the Steve Buscemi one. Have you seen no, that No, I swear. It's oh so gosh. funny. 50 Shades they of actually, Steve like, Buscemi. Okay, they actually superimpose Gandalf into the the Fifty Six Shades of Grey scenes. Like, That's oh amazing. my, God. it's so good. Yeah. Okay. Okay, mine well is done. John Piper. Mine isn't as uh, religious, but I think that the the tone of this quote definitely represents this person. Our life is like a mist. We are here one moment and then we're gone another. Don't waste any more days. Be an on purpose person. That sounds like Rick Warren. Is that what you said? I said it first because I knew you were going to get around to it. So I tried to get it in there. So I I will let both of you guess before I reveal the answer. I'm going to say Rick Warren. Okay, I'm going to say Bill Hybels just to go, you know, Willow Creek. You got Saddleback. I got Willow Creek. We'll see. Nice. Neither of you are correct. Oh, Oh, no. Yes. Although I would have Rick Warren. I would have guessed that, too. But just because you're thinking the on purpose thing. I was going to say you, you, you have you pronounced purpose purposefully to just mislead me that's what it was i kind of did i did I i'm not gonna out. lie <laughs> well the, the, the answer is joel olstein nice. right joel that's olstein. very very inspirational very it is, it is yes very... all right uh, did you blink while you said it of course i did I had, I had to get in the character uh can i be i probably shouldn't even say this i, I you know i don't know i don't know if i can say this or not but mona uh, your dad's voice sounds exactly like Joel Holstein. Have you ever known that? Oh, ever? Why did you say I, that? I swear, if, if you listen to Joel Holstein, it's like... you've ever done to me. I, I, know, I love your dad. He's actually, amazing. no, Joel Holstein, I, I think I can I actually close my eyes, Joel Holstein. When I close my eyes, yeah. Joel Holstein sounds exactly like him. <laughs> no, I, I, it's not anything against my dad or Joel Holstein. I can actually tolerate Joel Holstein. It's just now every time I hear my dad talk, I'm going to think about that. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Um, Okay. okay. Mona I have finishes one out. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One more. Okay. Who said in reference to transgender friendly bathrooms, it violates every sense of privacy and decency for people of both sexes, adults, and children? Hmm. So it's not a super religious, but this is a very religious figure. So I figured yeah. it counts. And went on to say it's not only ridiculous, but it's unsafe. There I'm are so many Christians go. that say that right now, though. That's- I know. That's tough. I'm going to guess Huckabee. Oh, okay. Alan, what do you think? Um, I see. I don't know if you know this person. So I just, I just know people who like in my circles that are not your circles that you, I can't think of any popular person that would say that. I'll just say Wayne Grudem. He's, he was one Mm. of the heads of the, um, gender, biblical gender standards thing. Yeah, you're right. I have like, I have very little exposure to Wayne (laughs) Grudem. Yeah, I have no idea who that is. So I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> oh, it, okay. So actually, whoever was talking about this, you're right. This could be like a number of people, but it happened to be Franklin Graham. Oh, oh seriously? Yeah. That makes you know what? Franklin that makes Graham. sense. 
Yeah, Billy, so Billy Graham's son, Franklin, is now like kind of taking up his mantle, but he's like way more charismatic than Billy Graham was. So that's interesting. That's, um, and a lot more politically involved than his dad was, too. A lot. Well, Billy Graham was pretty politically involved, I would say. I mean, he went to the White House all the time. But you're I right. Mean, like, vocal, he's more like, like vocal about his. He's yeah. more sectarian than Billy Graham was, probably. Right. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Sure. Yeah, I, I don't know what that means. Accurate. Like, like more, more like citing along party line. Yeah. No. More adamant against or for stuff or whatever. All right. Well, I think Suit. that I like uh, this game. Yes, Success. this is a good one. So we'll, we'll, we'll put this into the rotation. I think this is a keeper. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for us this week. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, uh, to support the podcast, rate review and subscribe through iTunes or wherever else you get your audio content. Uh, also don't forget to check out our blog at, uh, And always, as always, we want to hear from you. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast, please feel free to email us at podcast at irenacast.com or follow us on Twitter at irenacast or on Facebook, Facebook, dot com slash ironicast that's a lot of uh social media things but we're available (laughs) so for this week i'm jeff i'm mona and i'm alan thanks for joining the conversation 